Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. This is a podcast where we start with a random article on Wikipedia, and then we discuss it a bit and follow the links and see where it takes us. Today's starting topic is International Color Day. John, why don't you start us off? Well, International Color Day was based on an idea proposed in 2008 by the Portuguese Color Association, whose president... Maria Oau Dureo presented the idea to the International Color Association. And the proposal was agreed in 2009 among the members of this society, which, composed, which is composed of national associations and members representing more than 30 countries. And now it's uh, set on March 21st every year. Oh, which, we just missed this one. Yeah, lines up uh, right on the, the other, equinox. The other... Um, the other podcast we missed another day, like holiday uh, thing. We did. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Was, oh wait, no, yeah, we did this. A, we've done this twice now. This is the second time we're we just missing these things. Yeah, we, we could were, <laughs> literally have a little bit better luck. Is what it comes <laughs> down to. If we did this just several days sooner, hmm, hmm that's a shame. Yeah. All right. So International Color Day has this weird logo it's kind of like a color spectrum around another color spectrum two Mm. circles of color spectrums set inside of one another um as to what the international color day is this article fails to sort of say (laughs) Um, like what are we celebrating maybe you're just celebrating color i think i I think so because like that first sentence there at the top of the article says that it, color is, thanks to visual perception, one of the most influential phenomena in people's lives, and uh, also helps people formulate their perception of reality. Which, yeah, sure. The thing that I find weird about this article, though, is that out of the gate, it comes out being defensive. <laughs> An International Color Day has been considered as appropriate since <laughs> like why do you need to justify it's appropriate if Are you just want people against color day i guess i mean maybe they took it like the wrong way or something i don't know <laughs> how just talking about colors we're talking about like crayons in the box type colors like that's like you know green gold marigold saffron turmeric like these are all colors <laughs> It's interesting under the activities section, they just seem like a lot of ordinary things that happen all the time. It just says arts exhibitions, architectural projects, design, decoration, fashion, meetings, debates, scientific events, workshops on the use of color and light, 
contests on color and light design, and then just wearing national and regional identity colors. So, literally, they just do everything. Because yeah. everything <laughs> has colors in, on, or around <laughs> it. So, I... Yeah. But I'm sure there's probably some cool art designs and stuff there. It's just, uh... Well, I guess it's a little... It's a little bit of a strange thing. Maybe they weren't defending it from people mm. being against the idea of Color Day up there so much as they were just sort of being like, no, yeah, we can totally... There's totally a reason for us <laughs> to do this. Like... Yeah. Yeah, maybe people are just like, wait, why? Why are we doing this? <laughs> why? Why? We're just doing normal, like, art convention things. Why aren't we just call it that no 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 we're celebrating color internationally we're celebrating it all around the world today and they said it uh just as a side note quickly they said it on the uh spring equinox to uh better serve their purposes of the logo for it being half colors and then half darkness Mm. where basically they're saying oh well on this day half of the (laughs) world will see all of the colors of the spectrum for 12 hours while the other half is completely in the dark. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of feel like they put way too much thought into this. I, I do too. I mean, I don't I, I don't know. I really don't think that there's... It's not really necessary. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we look into the International Color Association? Yeah, I want or... to see... I kind of want to see where these weirdos come from and what they're about. Okay, well, let's see. What's up with these guys? So basically, they are a society that encourage research in all aspects of color. They started out on 21st of June in 1967 in the United States. Because I guess we decided to form them from the Commission Internationale de... Le <laughs> that just got way too French for me. Um, the CIE, which I've, another organization I've never heard of, hmm. but basically the CIE met in Washington, D.C. in 1967, and when they did so, they decided to form this uh, International Color Association. Hmm. Um, now, I'm left in the dark as to what the CIE is. Yeah. Uh, as there is... Oh, it's the uh, Commission of Illumination. Oh, uh, okay. And there's a link to that there, too. Like, we could just follow a rabbit hole <laughs> on all these, like, weird organizations for pointless things. Yeah. Well, it's weird. Interesting to me that um, it was formed in Washington, D.C., in the U.S., but the spelling is the... Um, I guess British or oh, yeah, that's... non-American spelling mm-hmm. of color with the U. Well, I think And that... it's abbreviated AIC. Yeah, I don't <laughs> understand what's happening here. I think this whole... I think the whole committee was formed elsewhere, and then mm. they just happened to form the International Committee on Color during this uh, meeting in the United States. It just happened to be in the United States, though. Yeah. It probably started in, like, France. Because everything probably. in this article has, like, parenthetical French yeah. uh, wordings in it. Is, yeah, they definitely specify all French versions of the name. Oh, well, yeah, we could see what that CIE is. Well, hold on here. I just want to see a little bit more about what they do. 
Um, every four years, the EIC organizes International Color Congresses, which is responsible for arranging midterm meetings, which take place two years after the Congresses, and interim meetings, which take place at intervals corresponding to one and three years after the Congress. And Congresses feature original papers in all themes and fields related to color. <laughs> Why is this so, like, political... Just to talk about colors. <laughs> this is so strange. They all agree upon meeting places and different venues, different times. <laughs> and it's all very organized and very political. Like, what more is there to say about colors? I, there really can't be that much. I mean... Because, like, colors are colors. You, yeah. I mean, what do you say about them? They're neat. It's but like, hey, that's blue. I mean, blue's blue. Blue's blue. <laughs> How does that make you feel? I mean, sometimes sad, but also sometimes cool, and sometimes it's okay to feel cool. <laughs> sometimes I'd rather feel cool than hot. But there's, the, I'm sure that there are people out there who think that this is necessary, <laughs> but I'm of the opinion that it is not. <laughs> this yeah. creating papers. And they've been doing this since the 60s. I don't... <laughs> well, maybe they've been doing it even longer. I guess we'll have to go to the other article to find out. That's true. So over to the Commission on Illumination. Yeah, International Commission on Illumination. Or the CIE, because of the uh, <laughs> French name that I completely garbled earlier, Commission <laughs> International de l'Eclairage. <laughs> I really don't know how to say that. That's mm. too many vowels in one place. <laughs> wow. These are pretty important folks here. They are the International Authority on Light Illumination Color and Color Spaces. Oh, so this is more of a science organization, it would seem. Perhaps. Yeah. Wow, it's established in 1913. So this is one that's a little bit more storied. Hmm. But it's not the first organization <laughs> of its kind. Yeah. It was a successor to... The Commission Internationale de Photometrie, which I can say, <laughs> which sounds like roughly translated the International Commission on Photometrics, perhaps? Yeah, I suppose. Or photography. I don't know what they were doing hmm. before, but they probably were, I suppose, expounding on what all they could do. I noticed they don't have a link to that one. They don't. They just kind of stopped. They, let, <laughs> they said, somebody's going to try to figure us out. The buck stops here. This is all the more they're going to know. Or they're just like, listen, these are all basically the same thing. Yeah. You know one, you know them all. <laughs> <laughs> Which seems to be the case, yeah. Because, once again, what do these guys do? Uh, they, they look into <laughs> colors. They look into mm -hmm. light, too. What does light do? It wants to see colors. <laughs> They do have several milestones, though. If you look at that, they mm. have done some things of note. For example, they were the ones who established the uh, spectral luminous efficiency function, which basically allows people to describe the average spectral sensitivity of human visual perception of brightness. Mm. Okay. So that's a way for us to mathematically represent what we are seeing in terms of color and light. That was all the way back in 1924. Since then, they've sat around twiddling their thumbs. 
They convened their eighth session in 1931. They don't meet very often, do they? Well, they were established in 1913. Eight years after 1913 would be not that. (laughs) They met eight times in, what's 18 years? Yeah, it sounds like. So it doesn't break down very well mathematically. Mm. How does that... What kind of intervals are they working on exactly? Well, I guess, like, if you don't have that much to talk about, then <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. no point in meeting right. a lot. Man, I what a weird group of groups we have found just mm-hmm. there. Well, it looks like they, in 1964, they established a new standard for um, the daylight, like... The daylight color temperature. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's all you can say. They <laughs> figured out how bright daylight was. Yep. Which is good. I mean, it's day <laughs> right now. I can go see that. <laughs> Not to poke fun at your accomplishments, International Commission on Illumination. I'm just a little, I guess, underwhelmed. <laughs> I was thinking that if we got deeper and deeper into these, we would get more and more meat out mm. of them and it would get more eccentric and like crazy as we went but as it turns out no they were kind of bland to the core yep about as exciting as the international commission on illumination sounds like it would be sounds like it would be about as exciting as watching paint dry <laughs> and Which as they probably I, did they probably do <laughs> <laughs> it's a commission on color where else are they gonna get it from <laughs> well we could go to light or color or illumination from here check out the basis for their whole foundation yeah i kind of want to do that but i don't know which one to go to which one would be a better idea Mm. for us to look into well color is based on light so i figure if we go to light then we can kind of learn a little bit about both maybe all right Seems reasonable. Oh, there's a nice little gif on the side here that looks like Dark Side of the Moon's album cover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a light, like a stream of white light going into a prism and being broken up into the rainbow spectrum. Now, this article is about light very generally. It goes into it very much in depth. The basis of this article though is that of course light is usually referring to visual light visible to the human eye mm-hmm. that's responsible to for the sense of sight and there's a lot of very technical ranges that that falls into so I'm not going to really go into that too much because I don't know how many people <laughs> would really appreciate what it means right no painting in broad strokes you mm-hmm go with like it ranges from infrared to ultraviolet basically yes but both of which we can't see with the human eye right those are somewhere in the middle exactly but we do have we have created devices that can pick up those wavelengths Mm -hmm. and you know infrared goggles and you know like there's people that take pictures using ultraviolet light and picking up that and that yep. stuff's really cool but it is actually so based on this 
what we're what we were looking at before was pretty much looking at the first paragraph here. Mm. The electromagnetic spectrum and visible light, because that electromagnetic spectrum is basically what gives us everything from darkness through blue, green, yellow, red, indigo, violet. Yeah, this first little couple paragraphs kind of jumps around a little bit in topic because it kind of just says the main source of light on earth is the sun then talks about how plants require the sunlight to create sugars and goes into their whole thing and talks about kerosene lamps and (laughs) fire and all sorts of stuff the fact of the matter is i think that light just is around and in so many uses Mm -hmm. trying to sum it up in a couple of paragraphs it's just very scatterbrained (laughs) at best there's only like time to mention everything light can do in one sentence Mm -hmm. so that's what happens and i can understand why there's a lot of this is one of those articles that leads to various other very long-winded articles and (laughs) uh we go from everything to the history of theories about light uh, to light pressure, to units of measurement, light sources, optics, speed of light. All of those things can get pretty in-depth. Mm-hmm. So they, I guess, um, they kind of lump the electromagnetic radiation like with visible light and stuff. They kind of include radio waves and microwaves and x-rays and all sorts of stuff with light so like i mean technically if you had the right kind of eyes you'd be able to see microwaves and stuff as color or as light or something that'd be kind of freaky yeah every time you put something in the microwave you end up looking in there and being (laughs) like oh it's getting it's getting hit by a lot of the a lot of this light (laughs) i don't don't, don't necessarily like that (laughs) yeah i've never really thought of microwaves as light but I guess it makes sense. It makes sense. It's all yeah. it's all waves. Everything's waves. It's wave theory. <laughs> and then we get into the speed of light, which is approximately fast. One hundred eighty-six thousand two hundred eighty-two miles per second, which is very very fast. They also talk a bit about uh, various light sources. Uh, the sun, uh, light bulbs, thermal emissions, so that's talking about things like fire, welders, torches, that kind of thing. Hmm. And then they go into various kinds of luminescence. We have bioluminescence, chemolum, chemoluminescence, uh, cathodoluminescence, which is kind of like a cathode ray tube, which is basically talking about TV hmm. sets, computer monitors. And lots of those are pretty interesting in their examples like bioluminescence for example is talking about things like uh fireflies which uh illuminate mm-hmm. stuff around them through their own biological processes which is kind of cool yeah which they are now or at least in the past couple of years have started to really try to kind of experiment with cross um genetics and trying to give certain things the properties of like you know say fireflies or you know a glowing eel or something like that um you know like they 
they'll try to make a rat glow in the dark or something, <laughs> which interesting Would, possibilities. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, seeing a rat at night's already pretty scary. I don't know <laughs> if I really need to be glow in the dark too. So from here, there are several fascinating possibilities. There's also several. Uh, rather dry possibilities, I should <laughs> say. A lot of there are a lot of terms about light, all of which are very important, mm -hmm. but none of which are very fun to talk about. Um, well, as a person who is colorblind, um, not like most people assume that colorblindness is just I see black and white. Right. Which is incorrect. <laughs> that is the extreme case of colorblindness. Um, but yeah, colorblindness, at least in my term, my sense, or and the most common sense is you just can't distinguish between certain colors. Certain colors kind of look the same. Like for me, purple and blue... It's anybody's guess. I <laughs> one one of you know if I see something that's either purple or blue, I it's basically a guess, and I'm usually wrong. <laughs> but um, I would I would be interested in kind of going into like looking into the rods or cones, um, just to see like the inner workings of the human eye, and seeing like what happens with that okay so we want to go rods cones or retina hmm. well if they're both located in the retina then maybe we can start broad with the retina and then kind of go from there that sounds like a plan dig a little deeper okay so it looks like the retina is pretty much the bulk of the eye would it seems I'm trying to look at this picture here that they have of the eyeball and look i guess it's not necessarily the bulk. I well, think it's okay, just it's this the outer layer around the the inner layer inside the eye itself. Yeah. It's just kind of the lining of cells that is sensitive to light. Mhm. Mm and it contains the aforementioned rods and cones that assist in viewing light and color. Now I um I forget which does which one one of them processes the magnitude of light from darkness to brightness you know the brightness and then the other one processes the color i can't okay it looks like maybe the cones are the brightness like the you know mm -hmm. the light sensitive and then the rods are the ones that pick up the color maybe well, if you or maybe I'm wrong here I think I think the fact that the cones are the ones that pick up the light are the ones that they then become the ones that really are sort of your taste buds for color so to speak mm. if you scroll down in this article down through the structure a little bit off to the left you'll see a picture that's kind of half red half yellow and if you click on that, that picture is sort of the distribution of cone cells in the uh, retina of an individual with normal vision on the left and a colorblind retina on the right. Oh, okay. On the left, you see that there are very few 
red there are a lot of red, yellow, and blue sensitive cone cells. That's kind of what a normal person's retina is going to come down to. They'll be able to see those colors because of the existence of those three different mm -hmm. kinds of cone receptors. However, in a colorblind person, you'll note that there are still quite a few blue and yellow receptors, but red sort of phased out. Interesting. And that causes all kinds of a ruckus because, of course, <laughs> uh, blue and yellow make green, but as soon as you're talking about oranges mm. or any sort of hues of red and yellow, you're going to be kind of uh, left in the dark, so to speak. <laughs> And they do have a little blurb about colorblindness here. Um, kind of goes along with what I was saying before. These individuals are not blind to objects of a particular color, but experience the inability to distinguish between two groups of colors. Right, and that kind of makes sense to me, looking at that picture we were looking at before. Because, yeah, there's no way you can... If you're devoid of some of those cells, you're still going to see color, but you're not going to be able to distinguish because some of those colors are going to be results from uh, colors blending together. And if you don't right. have the other half of what's bl being blended, then, yeah, that's where you're going to be. Mm -hmm. That's kind of cool. I wonder if there will be any um, advances to that end. Like when mm. are we, We've already started working yeah. on being able to restore vision through... LASIK surgery and that sort of thing. I wonder how long it'll be before we're able to kind of... Inject uh, rods and cones. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, think about it. They're already growing various organs and mm -hmm. uh, tissues as replacements for yeah. other humans' organs and tissues. So uh, it really seems to me like maybe they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be the easiest to install, mm -hmm. but uh, they wouldn't be that hard to grow a few. Right. Well, it also has something interesting here where it says that some animals, uh, while we're talking in humans, we have three spectral groups or like subgroups, um, the three different types of cones that you mentioned earlier, like the red, right. blue, yellow, but some animals have four what? and the trout can actually... They have an ultraviolet subgroup, so they can see ultraviolet light. Yeah. Whoa. Some fish are sensitive to polarization of light as well. So, I mean, it's not unreasonable to think that at some point in time, maybe um, the uh, transhumanist movement could inject themselves with certain things to allow them to see ultraviolet light or oh yeah that would be totally polarization and stuff mm -hmm. and beyond that though that's kind of an interesting side note uh i was listening in on i believe it was i was actually watching the cosmos series the one done mm. recently by neil degrasse tyson and they were describing how the eye had evolved at one point in that series and mm -hmm. basically they were saying that the eyes started out being kind of developed underwater. Mm, so yeah. what you're looking at is 
the fact that as we've evolved and become land-dwelling creatures, our mm-hmm. eyes are one of the few things that haven't evolved. Mm-hmm. And so the ones that are in fish and the various creatures in the seas, mm-hmm. they may be a little bit more advanced. They may be able to see more than we can. Right. That kind of supports that. Yeah, and plus you got to figure that fish are, you know, underwater all the time. Right. Which, you know, light doesn't necessarily make it down into like the deepest parts all the t- you know like very well so they kind of had to have evolved certain ways to see things right so that you know they had to pick up more sensitivity to any amount of light that's coming in so yeah that makes sense okay well where should we go well um we have something down here that i found interesting uh something about retinal gene therapy mm. which kind of seems like it would be talking about what I was mentioning earlier the mm-hmm. potential for um, gradually restoring or modulating the capacities of the retina mm-hmm. there's also various eye disorders so we could look further into color blindness in particular yeah, that's true. or any other uh eye happening such as retinal detachment or um, macular degeneration cone rod dystrophy all of which are relatively mm-hmm. horrifying <laughs> yeah I gotta imagine that um, retinal detachment does not sound fun at all no no it sounds very very painful and well, very mm. inconvenient. You'll just be seeing fine, <laughs> and that's kind of like instant blindness. I mm. mean, if your retina is detaching yeah. itself, then it's just kind of like, all right, see ya. <laughs> and then you're just, you're just, you don't get to go gradually blind anymore. You just mm. are. I believe that's one of the ones they can fix. It's just very, it's tricky, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually just watching an episode of Monk, the one where he goes blind by <laughs> um, somebody throwing acid in his eyes. Oh. And, uh, but yeah, then he gets his vision back gradually as the retina repairs itself. Oof. Cancer of the retina. That does not sound fun. No. Uh, what are you thinking? That sounds interesting. The pigeon. The pigeon. There is a link to the pigeon. <laughs> From the retina of the eye we can go to the pigeon there's also tons of other studies but the pigeon jumped out at me <laughs> because it was one of those ones that of course doesn't re- really fit in with what we've been talking about at all yeah, are they talking about the how the pigeon sees light they say example given the pigeon and that's talking, of course, about uh, there is uh, centrifugal control of messages. That is, one layer can control the other, or higher regions of the brain can drive the retinal nerval cells. In primates, it doesn't occur, but basically that's saying that the brain in a pigeon can adjust the retina mm. and functionally move it to do what it wants it to do. Sounds hmm. cool. Wonder what else the pigeon can do. We could see, yeah, but if there's anything else that's more interesting, <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, 
I think we've been on eyes and colors long enough. Starting to make my eyes hurt. <laughs> yeah, let's let's try out the pigeon. Uh, pigeons and doves, it seems, would be part of the same family of birds. Columbidae. Interestingly, the family is worldwide, but the most variety is in Indo-Malay and Australasia. Hmm. So basically, kind of the Pacific Rim. Talking about Indonesia, Malaysia, Australia. Hmm. Just strange because you see quite a few pigeons here. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have thought that would be a major hub for pigeon-related birds. Seems like they would have more exotic ones there. Apparently, pigeons have been used in World War One and World War Two. For what? Well, <laughs> well, the tire tape parades afterwards, you just like let them out of the box and be like, hey, war's over, done, cool. <laughs> well, apparently 32 of them were decorated with the Dickin Medal for war contributions. We're giving medals for wars to birds? Mm-hmm. Okay. It says um, they were used as homing pigeons. Um, they delivered messages. And yeah, I guess that's pretty much what they were used for. His message carriers. Hmm. Still, though, the fact that we were giving them a medal seems to be a little weird. Uh, I'm sure they, I'm sure they served an impor- important role, but at the same time, <laughs> they, they were just birds. You know, they were just kind of yeah. flying around. It's not like they really had a big choice in the matter. No. <laughs> but actually, some of them had names. Apparently, of these 32 pigeons that got medals. Um. The ones mentioned here are Commando, G.I. Joe, Patty, and William of Orange. Okay. <laughs> you got real buddy-buddy with these birds. Yeah, they, they talk about these birds like they were actual soldiers. Like and they're like, war heroes. <laughs> like the one they're talking about here, Cher Ami. A homing pigeon in World War One was awarded the Croix de Guerre medal with a palm oak leaf cluster for her service in Verdun and for delivering the message that saved the lost battalion of the 77th Infantry Division in the Battle of Argonne in October in 1918. And when the bird died, she was mounted and is part of the permanent exhibit at the National Museum of American History in the Smithsonian <laughs> Institution. Which is crazy. So... What I've learned from this article is some pigeons have eye uh, modifications that we don't have, and some pigeons are more of a war hero than I will ever be. Well, uh, apparently there was also, like, platoons of pigeons. Like, they were organized into platoons. Like, here it says a grand ceremony was held in Buckingham Palace to commemorate a platoon of pigeons that braved the battlefields of Normandy to deliver vital plans to Allied forces on the fringes of Germany. Three of the actual birds that received the medals are on show in the London Military Museum so that well-wishers can pay their respects? (laughs) They're birds, people. (laughs) They're birds. You strapped on a message and made it fly to a certain place. Like, they're not... (laughs) Yeah. You're not, they're not, they're not heroes. You train them to do this. <laughs> they're not Tom Hanks searching for Private Ryan. Yeah, why, why, why didn't we take the person who trained those birds <laughs> in the first place and then, I don't know, 
take him to a taxidermist and put him in the museum <laughs> instead. Like, why? Yeah, they don't even mention the people that train the birds. The birds didn't know what to do <laughs> on their own. We told them. Yeah. Somebody had to train these things. <laughs> this isn't fair. This is... Uh, who who trained them? <laughs> who uh, These birds did a fantastic job. I think the trainer deserves some recognition. <laughs> kind of reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons where Homer is wanting to get the employee of the month um, award Mm -hmm. or honor or whatever. And instead it goes to the inanimate carbon rod. (laughs) It's not done anything. Um, Actually, I I believe that's the one where he goes to space and the carbon rod gets all this praise and it gets its own parade and it's riding in a car and everything. And it didn't do anything other than hold a door closed and, that's the thing that gets all the attention. That's exactly <laughs> what it sounds like, as a matter of fact. Because, I mean, think about how crazy those World Wars were. And <laughs> the, the poor trainer who made these birds deliver the messages gets mm-hmm. the zilch of a mention here. <laughs> I'm kind of curious about the medals that these birds won, though. I wonder if yeah. there are medals that we have specifically for birds. And if mm. so, have there been any other birds that won them? since because it really doesn't seem terribly likely yeah i feel like we've kind of abandoned the whole bird angle we kind of well we found something more interesting i mean (laughs) it's a pigeon it's it's one of those things where it's kind of like sure there's i'm sure there's some varieties of them some Mm -hmm. are a little bit more colorful but at the end of the day we know what a pigeon is (laughs) but this we don't know what a war hero pigeon is that's what we didn't know that was newfound information yeah, let's, I would say let's go to the Dickin Medal and see what that is. All right. You might say we want to see what the Dickens it is. Haha, <laughs> yes. Which is appropriate because apparently it's from the United Kingdom. Uh, maybe it was just foreign countries that awarded medals to birds. Or maybe it's like Britain and France, it looks like, because mm. the Dickin Medal is a medal that was instituted by Maria Dickin in 1943 in the United Kingdom solely to honor the work of animals uh, in war. So it doesn't just okay. apply to birds, but all animals, which is still pretty interesting. Well, at least it's limited to animals. It's not like they're giving out purple hearts to pigeons or something. Yeah, they don't have one specifically made just for carrier pigeons. That's yeah. good. It makes me feel better about... <laughs> life? Yeah. About my choices in life? <laughs> Should have been a pigeon. Uh, has a list of recipients here. And what a, a list it is. I would have gone down Wikipedia. Like, <laughs> history would have been notorious if I was a pigeon. Wow, these are all pigeons and dogs that received this. Oh, and there's a couple horses and one cat. Yep. I'm interested about the cat then because why is... What are the cat... I mean, dogs you can train. Horses you can ride. Pigeons can take messages for you. What in the flying... I don't even know can cats do for you. Well, Simon the cat uh, was on the HMS Amethyst. And he was awarded posthumously for gallantry under fire and for the disposal of many rats. Despite injury... (laughs) During the Yangtze incident in 1949. Oh, my. So, I don't know what 
gallantry under fire, I guess. I mean, I feel like you're under fire. Cat would just kind of run away and not be involved. You see, the thing about that is you could find out more. Because every animal on this list, whether they have a name like Apollo, Gander, or Regal, or whether or not they have a number like DD.43.Q.879, all of these animals, all of them, have their own individual article. That is true. Man. Wow, there was... Okay, one pigeon... The name of one pigeon was All Alone. All Alone? That was the name of the pigeon. All Alone. (laughs) That is the saddest pigeon... (laughs) Then you have another pigeon named Winky. Winky. And these are some interesting names on here. But yeah, I'd say we can delve into Simon the Cat and see what his story is. Okay, Simon, your tale shall be heard. Oh, he's adorable. <laughs> wow, this is actually a pretty sizable article for a cat. Yeah, this is surprising. Holy hell, they buried him. With like a gravestone. <laughs> like an actual gravestone. <laughs> wow. <laughs> On his gravestone, part of it at the end says, Throughout the Yangtze incident, his behavior was of the highest order. I guess that means he didn't flip out. He survived injuries from a cannon shell. He raised morale and killed off a rat infestation. But again, like, I mean, with cats, they kind of just... They kill rats, you know, like, yeah. that's just kind of a thing that they do. They do that. It's not like they braved the, I don't know. Yeah, you took a you took a cat onto a warship in wartime, and the cat was just there, <laughs> again, just doing its own thing. I guess they just felt bad, because they literally, like, bought a kitten onto the, <laughs> like, this cat was, poor cat was one. Yeah. It was literally still a kitten, and it was just... Oh, maybe that's pretty impressive, then, if it's... Killing off a rat infestation as a kitten. Yeah, yeah, that's that's decent. Because, I mean, kittens aren't really that much bigger than rats. Mm-hmm. Oh, so he was um, kind of a stray when they found him. Ah, so he might not have only been one. He might have just been found in 1948. That could be. He was found wandering the dockyards of Hong Kong. Apparently Simon was found under undernourished and unwell, and... A guy by the name of Hickenbottom <laughs> smuggled the cat back aboard the ship, and soon he was busy doing that whole rat-killing business we were mentioning earlier, and gradually gained a reputation for mobster-like cheekiness <laughs> by way of leaving dead rats in sailors' beds. <laughs> yep. Well, that's what a cat does. That is exactly what cats do. <laughs> I mean, he certainly sounds like a veteran, because when it says uh, the recovery here, um, after uh, the Yangtze incident, the badly wounded cat crawled on deck and was rushed to Medical Bay, where they cleaned up his burns and removed four pieces of shrapnel, and he actually managed to survive for a while and returned to his former duties. Whoa. And then he fended off another rat infestation. And then, wow, he got into world news, too. Presented with Animal Victoria Cross, the Dickin Medal, and the Blue Cross Medal. There was even 
such notoriety given to this cat that so many people started writing letters to him <laughs> that they had to create the position of cat officer on board <laughs> to deal with all the fan mail. I mean, I can't really think of many pets that have become celebrities in recent years other than just, you know, like some of those, you know, one-off, hey, look at this animal that's has a weird face. Yeah. You know? It's not, it's not that, though. This is just kind of like, huh, <laughs> this is an animal that's on a boat. Yeah. It's kind of funny because I don't know if that would really get that kind of notoriety now. Like people have, yeah, I don't think there so. There is an animal in a vehicle. Okay. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, poor Simon. Unfortunately, when he got back to the UK, he didn't exactly receive a hero's welcome mm. because since he was from Hong Kong, he was uh, quarantined because animals from other nations in the United uh. Kingdom at the time were not allowed. Oh, that's a pretty cool story, though. Mm-hmm. Well, where should we go from here? So we could look into the Yangtze incident or Ship's Cat, which is apparently an article. What? <laughs> yep, there's a whole article called Ship's Cat. Okay. <laughs> I think we have a winner there because oh the Yangtze incident was just the communist Chinese firing upon the uh, HMS Amethyst as it went mm-hmm. up the river. So it's kind of a brief skirmish type thing. But Ship's Cat. It sounds promising. It is a pretty sizable article here. Oh, yes it is. There's a nice picture of Winston Churchill petting a cat. <laughs> Famous ship's cats. There's yeah. a list of them. And there's a reason why. It looks like <laughs> ship's cats have been a common feature on many trading exploration and naval ships for, uh, well, apparently most of history. It dates all the way back to ancient times. It's just hmm. a good thing to have a cat on the ship. Yeah, I mean, it's always nice to have a cat around. You're stopping in ports, you're carrying around food, so you may want to have a cat around to prevent rats from getting into your yeah. rations. <laughs> Not only that, but rodents also damage ropes, woodwork, and electrical wiring, all mm. of which could be very problematic if you're on a boat mm-hmm. that relies on any of those things. Now, it's interesting that, like, in this article about ship's cats, they have a little section about cats and superstitions, which doesn't really seem to necessarily be <laughs> limited to ship's cats, where it just mentions that sometimes they are worshipped as deities... And they were have a long reputation of being magical. I don't know. I guess maybe that goes along with why people keep them on the ships and stuff. Wow, there's some weird superstitions on here. Like, if a cat licked its fur against the grain, it meant a hailstorm was coming. If it sneezed, it meant rain. And if it was uh, frisky, it meant wind. Well, <laughs> that's kind of a strange... Those are kind of strange superstitions. But <laughs> some of those beliefs were, oddly enough, rooted in reality, according to the article. It says that cats are able to detect slight changes in weather as a result of their very sensitive inner ears, mm. which also allows them to land upright when falling. 
And so, since low atmospheric pressure is a common precursor of stormy weather, basically what happens is the cats become nervous and restless right before a storm. Hmm. And I've seen that in my own cat. Like, you know, yeah. if you, I mean, usually you're able to see a storm coming right. far off, but at nighttime you can see your cat getting a little bit more frisky, <laughs> so to speak, um, before a storm comes, and that would be a, a very advantageous thing. If you're out in the sea, you can't really see the clouds yeah. after the sun goes down. That's true. It's interesting how many other uh, cat ship cats there are on here that have their own articles as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is this one picture amongst that list of a guy, like, crouched holding a cat in his hands. <laughs> the cat looks like it's ready to jump. And the guy is painfully hunched over. <laughs> I don't know I don't what know the context of that is, but it's just funny. Well, it's finally happened. Our educational podcast has become a podcast about cats. <laughs> it was inevitable. Just as all things on the internet should be. Eventually about cats, somehow. <laughs> oh, no. Ship's cats today have been put to bed. Mm. The Royal Navy bet banned cats and other pets from Bam. all ships on the ocean in 1975 on hygiene grounds. Wow. That's a little strange. A little bit. But at the same time, it seems as though they are still very welcomed upon private ships. Mm. Apparently, the Dutch still enjoy them on all of their ships, Navy <laughs> or otherwise. I guess there's other ships' cats that we've not been thinking of. Like, there's... Mm. Uh, Lieutenant Ripley's Tabby Cat. Hmm. There's Data's Cat. Yeah, that's true. Didn't really think of them as ships' cats. But they're cats on ships. <laughs> Not necessarily sea ships, but... Right. Uh, I often forget that spaceships are very, very similar to, like, sea ships. Yeah, like, I mean... I mean, it's... I don't always make that connection, but they are extremely, like, paralleled. Yeah. And, like, the way that the crew is, like, interacts and is set up and, you know, they have, like, their navigator and the captain and all that stuff. Exactly. And they're all very isolated for a period of time mm. from, you know, the world they're accustomed to. Mm -hmm. They all have to get along or else <laughs> problems occur. And they need to keep a cat on board just in case anybody decides to bring along, I don't know. Tribbles, I suppose, are really <laughs> the main problem you have to worry about in space. Right. Well, you know, a cat would make short work of them. Well, he, maybe not short work, but he would, it would keep busy. Do, yeah. he would keep busy with them. Yeah. All right. Where should we go from here? Um. I mean, we have a lot of options here, really. Mm -hmm. We can go to the article about Lieutenant Commander Data. <laughs> we can go to the article about the classic 1979 film Alien. Or the Enterprise D. We could go to the Enterprise <laughs> D. You know what? We've been talking about ships. That's true. A lot. So That's very I feel true. like it's fair for us to continue on the path of at least ships. Yeah. I, I'm okay with that. Let's go to the USS Enterprise NCC 1701D, otherwise known as the Enterprise D. And in case you can't tell, the Enterprise, the USS Enterprise is from the Star Trek 
universe. And this specific ship is from the Next Generation series. The design for this ship was actually created by the same guy who worked on Star Trek The Motion Picture Hmm. and helped redesign the original Enterprise for that film. He was also called back for the Next Generation TV series to help design this, the Enterprise D. Hmm. Make sure not to make any ships in its likeness because there is a patent on the Enterprise D design. That makes sense. So is so this was from the like the entire run of Next Generation, right? Yeah, they were only in the one ship yeah. during the the TV series itself. It wasn't until the movies that they switched up their uh, they switched up from the Enterprise D mm. to the Enterprise E. Oh wow! The model for the ship was six feet by two feet. That's <laughs> yeah, I mean that's like human-sized, like a human laying down. That's gigantic. Apparently, there was another one too that they made. They made um, a four-foot miniature, starting with the third season of the show, and that added uh, some more texturization to the model, basically, mm-hmm. so they could have closer passes to it, I suppose. So basically, um, once their budget was upped, then they were like, hey, let's add some more detail yeah. to this thing. Yeah, let's let's do that. And then they also had to make another one that could do the saucer separation bit hmm. for the uh, movie Star Trek Generations because that was one of those sort of shoe-in, like, <laughs> gambit things they had to keep on bringing back. Because <laughs> they did it in the first episode, and they were just yeah. kind of like, well, this is going to be a thing. <laughs> this is going to be a plot device for the rest of the series now, here and there. Wow, the prop was only valued to be like worth twenty or thirty thousand dollars, but they auctioned it off once the show was over. It went for five hundred and seventy-six thousand. <laughs> That's a lot. That is a lot of money. But you got to figure, Star Trek fans are very rabid as far as fans go. Oh yeah. So very dedicated. If there days. is something to be had as far as props from a show. You can bet that they will be all over that. It's kind of funny. The reason why the Enterprise D looks so kind of lopsided, how like the nacelles mm-hmm. from which the warp drive come are very small on it compared to, say, the original Enterprise. Mm. Allegedly, it's because since time has passed, the nacelles have become more efficient, so they don't need to make <laughs> them as big, so they just don't. And so now you have this ship that looks, relatively speaking, kind of dopey because it's this mm. giant saucer <laughs> attached to this little, like, hind section that's just yeah. kind of, like, falling it around. <laughs> yeah, as far as how it differs from the original Enterprise in the original series, it's more or less, like, the major difference is that the saucer portion is more elongated, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a much larger, wider... Mm-hmm. Every dimension of it's just bigger, yeah. huge compared to the original Enterprise, and that's I think because it's supposed to be less of an exploration ship and more of like a like a passenger ship. Like uh, a lot yeah. of people doing various different things. It's about mm-hmm. it's much more of a cultural, scientific mm-hmm. exploration, combat, and <laughs> and just like general like paper pushing ship. <laughs> it does it does it all. It's interesting to me that you know they've definitely retired that ship. 
mm-hmm. in the Star Trek universe, and all it has on here is like a launch date. It doesn't ma- doesn't bother <laughs> to mention when they put it away. Hmm. Which makes me think, like, have they? Are they still writing novels with the Enterprise D? Like, did somebody hmm. else get it? And now they're <laughs> just kind of like still cruising around in the thing, or what happened there? Hmm. It's really kind of interesting how they've also gone to all this trouble to rebuild the various sections of the ship like the mm. the stages on which the people were filmed just for people to be able to walk through essentially <laughs> like uh i guess it was probably part of star trek the experience uh, back uh when they used to have that exhibit in las vegas and you could kind of just walk through various quarters of the ship and they have everything here with like little signs on it <laughs> saying oh this is a bed in a sick bay <laughs> Oh, this is the officer's quarters, but not the one you're used to. <laughs> this is the one in the saucer section. The other one's in the the other one that exists is down. It's in the little stupid-looking <laughs> lower section. And man, that lower section does look really dumb when the saucer comes <laughs> off. It's just like this little <laughs> it's a little really, nub. Yeah, this little nub, this little <laughs> nub of nacelles, just floating around. It's kind of kind of a silly little thing. <laughs> Wasn't there talk? Uh, recently of somebody trying to raise money to build a full-sized enterprise there as was. like an attraction. There was that. And I don't know what happened to it because, I mean, obviously the the objective with that wasn't to create one that would work. It was to right. create one that would be mostly functional, all except for the whole warp drive part. <laughs> um, and I don't know whether or not they did that, but I'm kind of mm-hmm. curious now. Yeah, that, I mean, that would rake in the money for sure. Oh, yeah, that'd be a great tourist attraction. Like, there would be no doubt in my mind. But, unfortunately, the article doesn't mention anything else about that here, about (laughs) the uh, real-life one, so I have to wonder if the funding kind of fell through. Well, it would be a very expensive project. It would be super expensive. You might say it would be a mega project. It would be a mega (laughs) project, in point of fact. It'd be huge. But I'm sure that there would be a very high turn uh return of investment on that oh yeah if you can take a twenty thousand dollar model and sell it for five hundred and seventy-six thousand dollars <laughs> at an auction you can pretty well guarantee that uh there's quite a few people out there who'd be willing to pay an arm and a leg to go yeah. into an actual enterprise d <laughs> now what are the what is the um Official dimensions of Enterprise. Oh wow, they actually do have them on here. So, according to Wikipedia, if they wanted to go about building that mm-hmm. full-scale model, it would have to be about oh, 200 meters high, about the width of one, about the width of a football field and a half, mm. and about the length of two whole football fields (laughs) so that'd be it'd have to be pretty big beyond that it would weigh four and a half million metric tons (laughs) that is a lot of tons that would be a lot of material (laughs) off the ground let alone Mm. going around at warp speed like yikes you never slow down either in <laughs> space. Whoa. Yeah, once that thing gets going, there's it's, no stopping. Yeah, that's going to be going at light speed for a bit. So yeah, it would be very challenging to uh, see that come to fruition. But I would, mm-hmm. I would, I would totally 
support it if it did. Yeah, so. for I sure. Would, I would make a trip out of that for sure. Oh, um, did you already mention the date that it was launched? I mentioned that it was. I mentioned the date, but I didn't say it specifically. Mm. It says it was launched uh, in. Uh, it was launched October fourth, twenty three sixty three. So if you wanted to celebrate the Enterprise D, October 4th, that's its birthday. Um, it's having a pre-centennial <laughs> birthday coming up. So make sure to get a nice present for the uh, for the Enterprise D in 2063. <laughs> Beyond that, it I did find, by the way, the uh, essential death date of the Enterprise D. It was during the film... Star Trek Generations. It basically was in the year 2371. Mm. Once that does that saucer separation, it crashes into a planet nearby, and at that point they say, okay, well, this is damaged beyond repairs. <laughs> We're not going to fix it, and it's done. Yeah, that's good eight years out of it. Well worth the probably trillions of dollars oh, yeah. it cost to oh, build. Yeah. It's a good thing that they've abolished money. Or they might have experienced some substantial <laughs> losses on that project. Yeah, I guess on that note, we will end this episode with the death of the Enterprise. So from International Color Day to USS Enterprise NCC 107, wait, 1701D. There we go. All right. So, yeah. Um, Thanks for joining us. as always, please visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twcpodcast. Um, we have prompt uh, posts whenever we get a new episode up. So um, just like us and follow us there. And then you can also um, check us out on iTunes and give us a rating and review on there. Yeah. So I guess our totally true fact for this episode is that originally dust jackets on books were not to keep dust off of it but to protect it when people dropped them in the dirt while carrying them across wide expanses of land during journeys so yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that yeah. I mean, it wasn't to keep them off the dust in the air; it was to keep the dust off of them from the dust that they would hit on the ground. Yeah, there was yeah. a big epidemic in those ancient times that I haven't specified. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I was Eric, and I was John, and this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. Oh wait, hold on, I forgot to thank. Um, <laughs> Uh, I forgot to thank uh, Louis Armstrong for our opening theme and King David's Jug Band for our outro. Anyway, there you go. What's the Wikipedia Chronicles and such? <laughs> do we need to do a second take on that? Oh, we just did the other morning. That's good enough. All right. People know. Okay. Oh, maybe I can switch some things around. That's. It should be fine. It should be fine. <laughs> We got the information out. We just didn't do it in the usual (laughs) order. Nobody's going to mind. It's going to be fine. (laughs) All right. Cool.